welcome to Glam City. This is our third season. Can you believe it, Anna oh, Clark? Oh my God, doesn't time, i.e. the past, fly? The past does fly <laughs> into the present. And Glam City is, I can't believe you don't already know, uh, where we lift the curtain and take you behind the scenes to reveal the marvellous archivists, the curious curators and the purveyors of cultural heritage who are working in galleries, libraries, archives and museums across Australia, but particularly here in Sydney. Now, you must already know, I'm sure, what Glam stands for, Anna Clark. Galleries. Galleries. Libraries. Archives. Archives and museums. And museums. Thanks, Tamsin. Very good. You got me. Uh, And today we are welcoming two guests from UTS's very own art gallery and school of design. Stella McDonald. Hello, Stella. Hello. Stella is responsible for the coordination and promotion of the exhibition program of UTS Gallery. And she works with artists and curators to develop exhibitions, projects, publications and a whole range of public programs. And Stella was formerly the associate manager of Miniver Gallery in Sydney. And she's also an artist and writer. And joining us also is Aaron Seymour. Come on down, Aaron. Uh, he is a designer and lecturer in the School of Design at UTS and has designed audience experiences for a whole range of galleries, including the Australian War Memorial, the National Museum of Australia and a bunch of others. So what I want to know is maybe you first, Stella, how, how did you come to UTS Art? Oh, a very long and painful journey through the arts. No, I trained as an artist at uh, UNSW and uh, did my master's there in time-based art. Uh, oh, what's that? It's Well, it's no longer exists there, actually, but it's a fantastic formal exploration of art that involves time, durational performance, video, installation. Uh, and my practice revolved around, at that time, looking at writing and how that could be a visual medium. And then I went on to uh, co-manage Minerva in, in Potts Point for three years uh, while pursuing a, a critical writing practice, writing on artist exhibitions. And then I was teaching at the National Art School and UNSW and then headed over to UTS to be the assistant curator here. So what? why do universities need art galleries? Mm. This is a question that we're always asking ourselves and being asked. And I think particularly at UTS, it's relevant to have an art gallery that engages with the coursework here, the staff, the students for a variety of reasons. One is to increase our enjoyment of life on campus. So to be stimulated and made curious by works that we see around the campus, but also to to emphasise that creativity expands our own research, expands our own questions that we're asking in in whatever faculty or or course you're studying in. Could the converse also be argued that that scholarship can extend art practice? Exactly, yeah, absolutely. So we look at uh, what our researchers are doing here at UTS to inform our programs um, and exhibitions, and at the same time we look at the art world to see what it what it can speak back to those researchers as well. Aaron, you've now been at UTS for a little while and you also come from a practice-based background. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey here? Uh, my, my background is as a professional designer and although I actually studied film at UTS and a lot of that designing took place in the 
uh, for arts and cultural institutions. So a lot of work kind of in the early 2000s. At, at that time, there was a real interest in the museum sector around interactive technologies. So I worked for a company, CDP Media, as a designer, and we produced kind of interactive work, small things like touchscreens, but also kind of huge, you know, three-story high projections for a whole range of Australian uh, institutions. And, and is it hard... Uh, what are some of the challenges in, I suppose, creating digital media for a historical slash cultural institution? I don't know that there are kind of difficult challenges in a sense. I mean, I, th- I think thinking about audiences and how to sustain their attention and how much attention people are prepared to give to something. I think when you're deeply involved in a project and you care about it passionately, you you know, and, and the more you look into something, the more interesting it becomes. So you have to kind of consider... You have to put on your audience hat as well because actually when you go and see exhibitions, often you just pass through them quite fleetingly. So I think finding that balance between having an experience which is kind of rich uh, and informative but also not kind of tediously didactic and kind of overwhelming for audiences. So is that the sense? I mean, you know, Stella was saying that she hopes that the that creative practice and thinking about art on campus informs scholarship and the work of lecturers. Uh, how does that work in your own case? In terms of work practice that I do or practice that I see from other well, people? Yeah, practice that you see and being forced to think about what the public iteration of uh, your own practice means. How does that reflect back into production? I think in terms of looking at other people's work, you know, design is a literacy like anything else. And and if you want to be literate in it or in in the visual arts, you need to be looking at a lot of work. And also to have a sense of what's kind of current and the kinds of debates that are happening in the broader culture as well. Because I think design is a kind of interesting field and it intersects with lots of other fields. Uh, And so to be, I I think, to be successful as as a designer, you really have to be kind of aware of larger kind of uh, public ideas and debates. Um, In terms of my own practice, I mean, I think as an academic part of my role or responsibility is teaching, and I think you absolutely have to kind of have a practice if you want to be seen, at least if you want to be seen by students to kind of be relevant. And what are some of the projects that UTS Art are perhaps bringing in students and teachers but also producing something um, for them to consume as well as take part in? So UTS Art is an umbrella title for three streams. We've got the collection on campus, the exhibition and collection programs, and then learning and projects, which involves connecting contemporary artists to coursework and students on campus, connecting students to our exhibition and collection programs. What are the sorts of things that you're doing that provide that loop that Aaron was talking about between practice and... I guess, consumption, but not so crudely. Um, so we've got those streams I talked about. And yeah. then um, one one thing we do is um, a project called UTS Art Live. So that connects um, mostly Sydney-based contemporary artists to students on campus. So they'll come in, usually with a club or a class that's particularly interested in expanding their research or mm-hmm. practice. Um, and they will pursue an idea with a contemporary artist to stretch the way they approach problems, really, because I think at its heart, art is problem-solving. And so they'll look at, for example, we've got Supercritical Mass, um, who've 
been working over a, a long time with um, Masters of Architecture students, looking at how sound impacts on architecture. So those students will take that information back to their coursework and the artists take the student input back to their own practice. And we hope that we get two outcomes. We get students' work informed by artistic practice and we get more critical works of art looking at how we live and work. There's a super critical mass coming up in a couple of days, isn't there? Yes, August 8th. Um, it's going to be in the Gary Building, which is a fantastic space. Um, and that will be followed by uh, a panel with Supercritical Mass talking about their practice and, and their work on that project. And that's part of UTS Art Live. And what are, what's actually going to happen on Wednesday? It'll be a lot of clanging and banging and resonance. Uh, we actually uh, did a small test of that project last year um, and and it involved a lot of... A lot of resonances in the Gary building. These noisy students aren't staging a protest, they're learning and making art. The cacophony is all about discovering the building's acoustic potential. An experimental sound check bringing art and architecture into harmony. So you can expect some interesting transformations to take place in there. As someone who has a sensory disorder, um, I might find that a bit difficult to attend, but could anybody come along if they wanted to? Anybody could come along, and with enough notice I can bring some earplugs. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what I could bring mm. too. <laughs> One of the things I noticed when I came to UTS, well, it's no, pretty damn obvious, is that it's this campus of tall buildings mm. and it doesn't have heaps of public spaces mm. uh, in or the seemingly public spaces seemingly yeah that's exactly right like you need to enter into the buildings and travel up to a floor or navigate through some security st- staircase and that's true of the Gary building too and it's p- perhaps one of the wonderful things about the Gary building is that you come upon it rather than it sort of lurking you know standing out on the skyline and this is a very long-winded way of asking one where is the UTS Art Gallery? But two, how do you see it as a public space in the context of the campus and the particular nature of the campus? Mm. So UTS Gallery is on level four of 702 Harris Street. It is a pretty small (laughs) gallery and I'll get specific, it has movable walls. So I often find that people who've been once come again and don't remember the space Uh. in the same way. It's a very changeable space. But um, I know that as a team, we consider the gallery to be more than the four walls. And what I love about this job is that we have a whole campus to play with and open up to the public. And I know that the public don't know that they can come in and enter at different levels. So they could come into the Gary Building and encounter or be invited to encounter the supercritical mass performance. But by the same token, they could go up to level six of the tower and see the Warabaranura Indigenous Garden, which is one of our projects with Jambana Indigenous Research Institute as well. So yeah. hang on, there's a garden on level six of the tower there that is anybody could go to? That and anybody could go to, and it's filled with plants that are native to the Sydney Basin area. So they're medicinal and therapeutic plants. There's plants there that can treat a cough or a cold. There's plants there that can treat a venereal disease. They all have significance to the you know, Indigenous people of, of this area. There's one flannel flower that apparently if you collect the dew from it, before dawn it cures intolerable grief it's an incredible wow. garden so it's um, been curated but 
but in a collaboration with Jambana. Yeah, with Jambana, uh, with Alice McAuliffe, who's our learning and projects manager, and Auntie Fran Bodkin, who's oh, yeah. an Indigenous elder and botanist. So it's an, an incredible space. So perhaps the challenge then, given that I didn't know of its existence, mm. is ha- I mean, that, how do you meet that challenge of getting the word out to people? So we have our mailing list, we have social media, we have our network. And the challenge is always to expand that network. And with every project, we do so. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to ser.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This is a show made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And if you're listening on Apple iTunes, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find us. And while you're there, you might also like the Search for History Lab, which is a fabulous investigative history podcast also brought to you by 2SER and the Australian Centre for Public History. So we've been talking about UTS Art and about some of the projects that are happening. One of the latest exhibitions is called Hello World Code and Design, which you've been working on, Aaron, you've curated in collaboration with several artists. Um, And the exhibition Hello World Code and Design examines the role of code in contemporary design, considering the ways in which designers are integrating computation into their practice. Apparently, the exhibition gathers objects and technologies from across the design spectrum, including textiles, um, fashion, moving image, graphics, and even handmade to look at some of, I guess, the processes of design and some of the coding that goes into it uh, and the impact of coding on design practice. That's correct. I mean, the, the, the motivation for the show was because there's a, you know there's a there's a, a kind of lot of rhetoric around coding and how important that is. I've mm. got two young children who are both studying coding at school. Yeah, so do mine. Uh, and there's this kind of uh, public perception that coding is this kind of essential practice that everybody needs to become involved in, or they're going to become irrelevant in the 21st century. But there's not a very clear picture of what that actually means. And you know, my image of you know the traditional image of coding, and I guess through most of my life, my image of coding was someone, you know, sitting, you know, chugging Red Bull, sitting at a computer at three o'clock in the morning, you know, writing software, basically. And I think that notion of coding is really shifting. And I think that notion of computation is really shifting. You know, we have computation increasingly distributed in all kinds of objects, obviously, in our phones and in our pockets, but, you know, in smart devices, you know, and through the Internet of Things, increasingly, everyday objects are going to be, you know, smart. I hate to use that term, but at least coded in some way. And so I think design is a really interesting place to kind of poke around that question. What what does the future of coding and computation mean and what might it mean to have skills and to work in that area? And so the show draws on, uh, I think there are 25 designers in the show from all across the globe who are kind of using coding in a way that maybe uh, challenges those conventional ideas. So, for example, Altifact, who are uh, a design studio in Melbourne whose work's based around pottery, they 3D print clay, for example. So they do these you know, beautiful 3D printed kind of artefacts. And their work is very technological on the one hand, but also very kind of artisanal on the other hand. You know, similarly, there's there's a lot of people working in the show who are kind of materialising code and computation because, again, it's something that we tend to think of as existing in this 
uh, invisible kind of virtual space inside a box. Mm. And so the show is very much about looking at how code is escaping that black box of the computer and being materialised in the world in different ways. Stella said earlier that the point of art is to deal with questions, and that's exactly what you're explaining there. What are some of the questions and the pressing issues that some of the objects and artists in the exhibition are dealing with? Well, I'd call them designers more than artists, but I mean, I think these people all self-identify as designers. And they're, you know, I mean, I, I guess the conventional line is an artist is, is someone who's making work that's kind of purely about expression, self-expression or conceptual expression, where a designer is tending to make something that has some kind of utilitarian value. Um, so in that way, a pot, piece of pottery I would call design because it's it has a kind of utilitarian function, even if it ends up being displayed in the art gallery and is, and is okay. aesthetically beautiful. And is, uh, do you think it's still answering the same questions that Stella mentioned or is it doing something different because of that? Ut- I think it's doing something different and I think design is interesting because and one of the things the show tries to do is situate the work in a kind of larger uh, social and political and economic and environmental kind of context because I think what's you know I think design is incredibly powerful and you know and we hear a lot about how artists kind of change society and culture but I actually think design does to an extraordinary degree in all kinds of unseen ways you know if you think of the great transformations in the 20th century you know if you think about something as disposable as Cosmopolitan magazine and how that shifted conventional ideas or popular ideas around sexuality around you know around what it means to be a contemporary woman all those kind of things if we think about the iPhone and the way that's completely transformed the way people kind of communicate relate to each other you know live their lives so I think designed objects and experiences are very powerful because along with their explicit intention, they reshape the worlds in all kinds of really significant ways, some positively, some negatively. And so the show really tries to kind of look at that context as well. I mean, you were mentioning just now that you've got 25 designers from all over the world, mm. which seems an act of like administrative and imaginative, you know, a, a serious achievement. How did you go about curating that team and finding them and getting them to agree to send their stuff here and ensuring some, that stuff? <laughs> some of the work I was familiar with. Actually, it wasn't as difficult as you might think. Some of the work could be sent to us digitally and was manufactured in Australia. So a certain amount of the work is 3D printed and some of that we 3D printed at UTS. I mean, that's that's in itself interesting. That's a particular feature of the nature of the material that you're um, showing. That, that, that you could digitally bring it to UTS yes. and then produce it here. Yes, absolutely. And what are some examples of that? There's a fantastic project called the Free Universal Construction Kit so uh, by Golan Levin uh, and Sean Sims. And it is... It's designed, I mean, it's distributed for free on the internet, so it's an open source project, and it's 79 3D models of objects that allow children to join together 10 different building systems. So if you look at things like Lego, Connects, you know, a whole series of different building systems, they're these kind of proprietary closed systems. And so what this does is allows kids to take their Duplo and attach it to their Meccano and, wow. and to kind of bypass, so, you know, it, it offers a creative possibility for children, but it's also a kind of a political statement about the capacity of these kind of new technologies to kind of bypass those it's conventional... literally creating a creative commons. property laws. That's exactly right. <laughs> property. <laughs> hey, kids, ever wanted to connect your Legos and Tinker Toys? How about your Duplos, Bristle Blocks, and Lincoln Logs? 
now you can and much more with the free Universal Construction Kit. The free Universal Construction Kit and the special Universal Adapter Brick allow you to combine all your old playsets to create something new. Think outside the box with this amazing collection of adapters. Connect toys which previously couldn't fit together. Create strange new hybrids, monsters, and mashups. Imagine an endless world of designs. The free Universal Construction Kit is available on thinkfirst.com. Some assembly required. Some of the work I just knew from, you know, I don't know, being aware, having seen it previously. Some of it, uh, uh, I did a lot of Googling. (laughs) Research. (laughs) Research, that's right. (laughs) And then it's also about having a sense of what you're trying to communicate in the show, how the pieces might work together, um, trying not to have pieces that replicate or say the same thing, but perhaps present different ideas. I mean, the show is trying to cover a lot of ground conceptually, I think, Um, rather than being a very kind of specific and narrow show. It's trying to provide a kind of overview of this kind of shifting terrain. And Stella, were there any like particular challenges in staging this exhibition and mounting it that arise from the nature of these objects? Uh, yes, there were. And when Aaron was talking about the free universal constructor kit, I was prompted to think about the Liberator, which is a an object. I'm used to saying work. It's an <laughs> object, uh, a product in the show that is similarly, you know, distributed on Creative Commons license is that correct it's freely distributed freely distributed uh it's a gun so it's sort of the opposite of the free universal constructor kit in that it's um allowing you to print fabricate weapons in the privacy and comfort of your own home and so that comes with its that object comes with its own particular challenges in that according to australian law downloading the file you can be jailed for 14 years. So we spent quite a while dancing around how to present that object and interestingly realising that that challenge was its message. Mm. And so we, Aaron pulled together an animation of the gun which, which solved it and allowed us to show it. And it's wonderful when objects present those, those kind of walls. And so you have, to- you have an animation of... The object rather right. than the object itself. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea, by the way, of objects presenting walls, but there's a conceptual problem in that too, isn't there? It's, I mean, the interesting thing about that work and some of the work is is actually that the work itself is the 3D file. It's not the printed object. Right. You know, the Defence Distributed produced a 3D file that people could print at home. And, you know, each each iteration of that that someone prints, I guess, is a kind of physical manifestation of that. But I would say that the work itself is is the kind of 3D file. Can you also tell us about some of the objects in the collection, like 10,000 Cents by Aaron Coblin? Yeah, so 10,000 Cents is a fantastic work that critiques the kind of gig economy. It leverages uh, Amazon's Mechanical Turk. So one of, me- one of Amazon's businesses is a thing called Mechanical Turk, where people it's a marketplace to outsource kind of repetitive and menial tasks that you can post online and people can choose to... E- except to take on the task or not. So they took a photograph of a US $100 note and chopped it into 10,000 small pieces, and they posted those on Mechanical Turk. They wrote a little app that allowed people to redraw that uh, using a digital tool, and they offered people one cent to redraw the tiny slice of the $100 note. So people from 52 countries took on that task and were paid one cent. Uh, And then they ended up with 10,000 drawings 
at a total cost of $100, which they reassembled into a kind of reproduction of the $100 note. So it's a kind of fascinating thing to look at because when you look at it closely, you know, the, it's interesting that kind of aesthetic variability that happens across mm. the note, but also it's a fantastic commentary on the nature of kind of uh, digital economy. Mm. Each is so much more than just the object itself, isn't yes. it? On that note. <laughs> oh my it's God. not you often that I outpun Anna Clark. Um, <laughs> we, are, we are moving to the Glam Slam segment where we uh, talk about what's coming up in our diaries. Uh, what do you guys have coming up? I'm going to have a nice lie down. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> That's glamorous. So we have a panel on August 17 led by Cameron Tonkin-Wise, who's the new head of interdisciplinary studies in the School of Design here. Uh, that's going to be teasing out some of the ideas and problems in, in the exhibition. Uh, that's open to the public and a free event. And then on Saturday, August 25th, Aaron will be doing two curators' talks at 12pm and 2pm. With a nap in between. With a little nap and a snack in between. <laughs> And uh, then we have the Supercritical Mass performance on August 8th. And you guys and have a very the, full glam diary. We do. One of the things I'm really excited about, actually, with the exhibition is we're, having, we're running a series of workshops for school groups. So five different school groups, some, some uh, groups of girls who are interested in STEM, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths. maths. And also a range of kids from kind of lower socioeconomic backgrounds who are going to come in to Protospace, which is our amazing new digital fabrication workshop underground uh, below the alumni green at UTS. Um, and they're going to learn to 3D model and 3D print some objects. Cool. Well, what about you, Anna? I reckon, I'm hoping to go to the Professional Historians Association conference, which is at the end of August, but it coincides with some leave I'm taking, so I'm not sure if I can make that. But if I can't make that, everyone should try and get along who's interested in history or has does history for their for their work. I definitely want to go and see the John Mowindrilla exhibition at MCA, I Am the Old and the New. He's an artist from West Arnhem Land in uh, Northern Territory, and that looks really interesting as well. And the Archibald's on too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool. At the Art Gallery in New How South Wales. How about you? Yeah, um, I thought I'd head along to the Art Gallery of New South Wales and look at the faces of Australia, see which whether I agree with the people's choice, put my vote mm. in. But that brings us to the end of Glam City for today. So if you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, which is at 2SER.com. And, of course, you can also probably head to the UTS Art Gallery workshop, which is... art.uts.edu.au. Brilliant. And you can also hit us up on Twitter. Are you a tweeterer? Yes, we're tweeting, tweetering. Uh, UTS Art. UTS Art. And UTS Art on Instagram as well. Ooh, of course, Insta Life. That's one to follow. Uh, I'm at Cap and Gown and Anna Clark is... At Anna Hope Clark. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the wonderful support of 2SER 107.3. So if you want to get in touch, shoot us an email um, at glamcity at 2SER.com. And thanks again to Stella McDonald and Aaron Seymour for being our guests today. Thank you. Thank you. Glam out. Glam out. <laughs> 